Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. This is an encore presentation of our episode about the advantages and the challenges of being in the incumbent on a contract. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Becoming a Skyway community member makes it easier to navigate the complicated world of government contracting because you gain context from Skyway's team of former contracting officers. As a member, you get unlimited access to the Ask a Contracting Officer forum and hundreds of articles, webinars, and training modules. Go to skywaymember.com to get started with a personal membership because without context, you're likely missing opportunities that you don't see. Okay, let's get started with our talk about incumbency. We've talked a lot about context and the advantages that context gives you. Not unfair advantages, but just advantages because you understand more through context. One example that we hear a lot about, talk a lot about, is that the incumbent in a government acquisition has a huge advantage or an unfair advantage. Let's stay out of the fair versus unfair discussion because just because somebody has an advantage doesn't mean that it's unfair. Right. It's just a competitive advantage. That's a rabbit hole. So we won't get into that debate in this episode. Instead, we're going to focus on whether or not being the incumbent is a good thing. Of course, it seems good, but not always. There are good and and less good things about being the incumbent (laughs) in a competition. There's a difference between less good and bad. (laughs) Right. We'll get into that. First, let's stop and say thanks. Say thanks to Jody Essex. She's a government contracting specialist at Iowa State University. She's in Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to Jody for liking and sharing our podcast on, on LinkedIn. The likes and shares are important because that's how people find the podcast. And it's people like Jody who are liking and sharing the content that help more people find this information that we're giving away for free. Thanks, Jody. We should pause here and actually describe what an incumbent is before we go any farther. Incumbent means an official or, or a regime that, that currently holds office. So it's, it's sort of a political term if you get into the dictionary. In the context of the podcast and government acquisition, we're talking about the incumbent as the current contractor for whatever the government is buying. While the contract is is not often or maybe rarely is awarded just like it was last time. So it's maybe recompeted, but the acquisition strategy may change. But there's often an incumbent and there may be more than one. Because if part of a contract was moved to a larger contract, there are two incumbents now because the work was merged. Or if it's a phased contract, or say it's an R&D project, and as the process moves through the phases of development, there's an incumbent on the last one that might not be doing all of the work or any of the work because of OCI rules on the next one. Or there could be two contractors in an R&D situation that are both developing technology, and then they compete for the actual delivery of a productized version of whatever they are developing. So in that case, there's two incumbents. Productized, big word. (laughs) And in service contracts, a lot of times, it's the exact same service. It could be a grounds maintenance for a base. That's the same service it was last time. But it might not be competed the same way. Regardless, there's an incumbent who used to do it and wants to do it again. And And this can be tricky for contractors because if you don't know that your work is being moved or how that acquisition strategy may be changing... We had one where the the contractor didn't realize their work, the contract they had was ending. They thought that it was just going away. It wasn't actually going away. It was being moved to a different contract. And they didn't realize that. And they basically lost their incumbent work because until the RFP dropped, 
for this new work that was now on a different contract that was mixed with somebody else's work, they were kind of clueless and left out in the cold. Wow. Sounds like a relationship fail there. Uh, <laughs> there you when go. we talk about the process and the relationship, the process drove their work to a different acquisition vehicle and they were failing on the relationship part. So much so that they didn't understand that they could compete on the new contract for their very same work. That's a good point. This is usually the place where we get to far time. We're not going to talk specific far sites here because incumbency isn't specifically addressed by the far, like like we're talking about it today anyway. It mostly shows up in FAR Part 19 about small business acquisitions and FAR Part 22 application of labor laws. It's not really scripted out in the FAR. The impact of being the incumbent and the price of screwing it up is it's mostly learned through the school of hard knocks, I guess. Right. The question I often got as a CEO or I get now as a consultant is, you know, does the incumbent have an unfair advantage? And again, let's take the word unfair out of it and just say, do they have an advantage? And, and that's a judgment call as far as how, how fair or realistic it is. But it's often driven by their point of view is the incumbent thinks it's totally fair to have this huge advantage. And those who want to win think it's unfair because they're on the outside looking in. But the fact is there are some advantages and we'll, we'll hit a couple of them. And there are also some disadvantages that those who aren't incumbents don't see. Yeah, whichever side of that equation you're on, there are advantages and disadvantages that you, you better understand, whether you're the incumbent or whether you're competing against the incumbent. Let's start with advantages of being the incumbent. These should seem pretty obvious. As an incumbent, you know the customer. And the customer knows you. You have, you have relationships built up. As the incumbent, you know the work. You know how the job is done because you've been doing it. And as the incumbent, you, you have the team. You have the team of, of experts. You have the subject matter experts. You, you have all of the players who actually do the work. And as the incumbent, you already have the resources, the tools, the equipment, the factory, the ISO certifications. Yeah, just the processes of how you run the business. You know how the job is done. So how can that be a bad thing? So let's unpack each one of the advantages and flip them on their head. The first one, incumbent knows the customer. Well, do you really? I mean, have you stopped listening? One classic business case for a company that stopped listening to its customers, not, not really in the government world, but this is Kodak, who was making film for cameras. As digital photography came into the market, Kodak knew the, the camera, the photography zealots, the ones that, that cared about the best quality photographs. So the, the artists of the business, they knew so well and were convinced no one would ever want to change to digital because it is not as good as film. Well, it turns out that was a really small segment of the market, and the general public wanted easy more than they wanted great. So very quickly, the market shifted completely to digital photography, and technology came rushing in to make digital photography as good or better in some cases than film was. So Kodak overnight, they, they knew, they thought they knew their customer, but they weren't paying attention. They weren't listening to their true customers. And now we're in the situation where all there really is in, in a mass market kind of way is digital photography. This also happens in the government market. When I was a contracting officer, I had a contract that I inherited 
that had been won through relationships. It was a sole source contract for a modified commercial item. And as we were writing the requirement and as we were going through the market research zone, I realized that it wasn't that modified that there weren't other companies in the commercial market who could do it. And so when we put out an RFI, all of a sudden the sole source was very much under question. And so the, the incumbent, the incumbent challenge here, the incumbent contractor had a really strong relationship with the user. In this case, it was the user of the particular commercial item or modified commercial item. And they had convinced them that this is the only way to do it. Well, here I come as, as the, 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 one of the three deciders, <laughs> you know, I'm the contracting officer saying, no, this is not the only way to do it. Here are other companies that can modify this commercial item and make it even, you know, I think it ended up being lighter and, and faster and, and cheaper. And so all of a sudden that relationship fell, that relationship 20% got trumped by, you know, me, the contracting officer saying, well, what if we look at the 80% process? So you've just dropped a couple former episode concepts on people that may not have heard yet. No, the, you're right. the, the 80, 20 process. We have a couple different episodes on how the amount of relationship and the amount of process in an acquisition scales according to the size of the acquisition. And you also dropped the three deciders, which is a separate episode about how in the government world, it's not just the user that can say, this is what I want. Let's buy it. There's also a contracting officer in the loop and an economic decider in the loop that may help change the decision-making process. So as the incumbent, if you know your customer and you think your only customer is the user, the people that are actually going to use the product or service, you may not actually know your customer. And the second way that the incumbent has a disadvantage is that the customer knows the incumbent. So the government customer, the user, and knows the incumbent really well. And this, this is kind of a spinoff of what we just talked about, is they get too comfortable with, this is the company that can do it, right? Yeah. You know your customer, and the flip side is they know you. So they know all of the, the skeletons in the closet because they've been there. They helped you hide the skeletons in the closet. <laughs> Where this can bite you in the acquisition process is you read the RFP, you write a perfect response to the RFP, and the customer actually knows all of the little secrets. So they read your proposal with some biases built in. So even though you've written a perfect proposal for the RFP, there's a little bit of color that bleeds into it based on what they already know. And this can be a good thing if they love you. It can be a bad thing if they don't love you. But it's something that your competitors don't have. The government evaluators are reading the competitor's proposal for the words versus what the RFP asked for. And that bias can work against you. Even if they like you, it can work against you. Remember, these are people right. evaluating. I mean, this is, this is the right brain side of government contracting, if there is such a thing. <laughs> they're evaluating your proposal and they can't help but have the memories they have <laughs> while they're doing it. I stepped into this a little bit with that last comment. The incumbent not only knows the customer and the customer knows the incumbent, the incumbent knows the work. You know how the job should be done because you've been doing it. If the government decides they want to change how it's done or, or what they want to buy, you may be so blinded by what you know, may have trouble understanding why the government wants to change. Why should we change? This is perfect. You may also be an expert in how to do the job and win the contract the way it was competed in the past. If the government changes to a different acquisition strategy, if they decide to go through a GSA schedule or a GWAC, a government-wide acquisition contract, 
and you aren't used to competing like that, you could know the work perfectly and still lose because of a process foul. Competitors who don't know the work as well could know the acquisition vehicles better. Or, or what if you were a small business when you won this and now you're not <laughs> and you can't compete for it? That shouldn't sneak up on you. But, but it doesn't change the fact that you know the work. You've been doing it. And so the acquisition strategy changed because now you have to be a teaming partner or you have to convince them to that only full and open is the way to go or whatever the strategy may be. Yeah, That's changed. The opposite's true too. You could be a large business that's been doing this all along and be blindsided by the fact that now this work can be done by a small business. Yeah. And the government's small business office says, wow, this needs to be set aside for small businesses only. If you haven't gotten ahead of that decision, you could be in trouble. You might know the work perfectly well and not pay attention to those little nuances at all. And then it doesn't matter if you know the work. And another piece of this is the incumbent has the team and they have the team of people. Well, that's sort of true because we, like, what you and I have talked about the CETA support, which is a uh, systems engineering and technical assistance. And sometimes the, the contractor may change, but the badge doesn't, right? There's a way to say that when the contract is recompeted. Right. And These are people that provide support to government offices like government acquisition offices. And it is so common that every five years, the contractor that has that support contract changes and all the people in the office, all the contractors in the office that are providing that support somehow are still there the next month, right? All that happens is who's paying their paycheck changes. There's an episode we'll do at some point called Incumbent Capture that talks through all that. But that, that, that concept of, of having the team is part of the advantage, but it's also a disadvantage because you, you have to hold on to them. Yeah, if it's a highly technical acquisition, if this is some really hard engineering or R&D magic, you already have the team. If this, is a, if this is a continuation of what's been going on, you might already have the team that knows exactly how to do what the government wanted last time. If they change anything, you're, the fact that you have a team that knows what they wanted last time could actually hurt you in the competition because you can't open your eyes to new things. You're not in as much danger that all of your people will jump to another contractor if you lose, but you may be blinded by what you already know, especially if the government has changed what they want just a little bit even. Another disadvantage is that the incumbent already has the resources, the, the tools, the, the manufacturing equipment. You may have gotten all of your processes certified, but then those processes may be out of date. So if you're using old tools or, or, or old ways to solve the same problem, does the government care about that? Because the government doesn't care about sunk costs. They don't care that it cost you $5 million to do something to win a contract five years ago. This follows right along with everything we've been talking about. The incumbent has has a process in place that they use certain software tools to solve the problems or to perform the mission. That's fine if technology hasn't changed in the last five years or, or six or seven if, if they, they wrote that they were going to use that in a proposal prior to the acquisition process. Six years down the road, technology's changed. The incumbent may not be able to make the mental shift and write a proposal that says, this is how we would do it differently. They're experts on how it's done today, but how it's done today is a six-year-old way of doing things. Yeah, I had a contract where the staffing for managing this contract, because they were doing it the way they've been doing it for 20 years, was 27 people. And in comes this new contractor who automates a lot of the processes, figured out how many things were, were redundant just because of the bodies that were there and things that weren't needed to be done anymore. Long story short, 
they had less than five people but got the work done. So imagine how frustrated the contracting officer's representative, the, the core, we have an episode about those folks, how frustrated he was when he said, hey, wait, this contract has been doing this for 20 years. By the way, he's been the core the whole time. And they, they can't do it with five. And it was a battle. But within six months to a year, he realized, oh, wow, they can. <laughs> because we were doing it under, you know, we were using like like stone tablets and these guys are using iPads. Right. <laughs> with like a the- fifth of the people, somehow it still gets done. That's what can happen when technology changes. And is properly applied. <laughs> Even better. Last disadvantage of being an incumbent that we're going to talk about today. As the incumbent, you have a target on you. All of your competitors know who you are. And just so we continue a streak of getting a FAR reference into every episode, FAR 5.205E1 requires the contracting officer to announce the incumbent service provider. In, in, in some esoteric cases. Even if they don't have to announce it. It's still not hard to find out who the incumbent is. So as the incumbent, every competitor knows who you are and throughout their proposal can put in little digs about why you're not the right contractor to do it in. They might not be explicit about it, although they may be, but they can completely ghost you in their proposal. If you're the incumbent, you might not know who's competing against you, and you certainly don't know how they would propose to do the job. How you're doing it is obvious to everyone, or should be, because probably the requirements are in the RFP. You don't have the opportunity to fight back against all of the little negative things that your competitors are putting in their proposals. And something to consider is that, well, yes, through some some very good business intelligence gathering and some good capture efforts, you can find out who you're going to compete against, even if they're not the incumbent. But compare that to the competitors are the incumbent, you basically have to Google it and you'll find them. Right. It, the difference is huge. All these disadvantages really sum up to the fact that the incumbent expects to win. As our friend Wendy Freeman said on, on the podcast, every company's future revenue stream includes the contracts they have. They do not plan to lose them. So sometimes they're a little bit too... Full arrogant. of themselves, arrogant. <laughs> yeah, we call it incumbent-itis. There you go. Let's link this to the acquisition and execution time zones. Where does this occur in the process? This is the market research zone, the RP zone, and the source selection on the acquisition time zone side. This is where the government is making decisions about whether to go with the incumbent or not. And this is where the incumbent has to pay attention to those little acquisition process things that can derail them whether or not they're the incumbent. Like you talked about with, is this going to flip to a small business set aside? Or did I grow out of the ability to compete on small business contracts? Yeah, and sometimes it's a structural change, like the small business, or sometimes it's a choice. I mean, like you just said a second ago, they're, they're deciding whether or not to use the incumbent again. That's an oversimplification of it, but in reality, how the acquisition team structures the RFP through the market research zone reflects how happy they are with what they've got. And on the execution time zone side, this really comes into play during the recompete zone, which, as we've talked about before, overlaps with the market research zone on the acquisition time zone side. And if you don't know what the acquisition and execution time zones are, we have separate episodes about them. Episode 3 and episode 84. It's important to understand the advantages and disadvantages of incumbency. This is a role that's relished by those who have it, and it's targeted by those who don't. Those who do not have incumbency want because you have a contract. They're trying to get them. So being an incumbent contractor, I wouldn't call it a mixed blessing because having a contract, it's, it's not a bad thing. Right. The, point the, the point is to have the work. 
But when it comes to competing, when you're the incumbent, it's a different approach, a different strategy than when you're trying to become the incumbent. It's easy to get lazy, apathetic, what, whatever, when you're the incumbent. From the government side, how does this cause problems for the government? It's, it's another one of those CO's dilemmas is that as a contracting officer, you love the incumbent, your team, your acquisition team, your customer loves the incumbent, but you need to make sure that, that we aren't biased toward giving them the contract again because they have to compete. Likewise, if we don't like the incumbent or just can't wait for this contract to be over, and, but we haven't been able to use a contract off-ramp, <laughs> we did an episode about those, but it's the same thing. We need to make sure that we aren't biased against the contractor. You can't structure it so that there's no way they can win because then that's a protest. And, and as far as how do you treat the incumbent, on one extreme, theirs can't be the only way. Surely there's an innovation out there. Your customer is saying there needs to be a new contractor. There, there has to be another way to do this. That's not always true. Right. And then the other extreme is you're so married to them. It's like theirs is the only way. They're the only ones that can do this. Like I was talking about with that modified commercial vehicle. This has to be the best one. They need to win again. Well, that's not always true either. If we hate our incumbent, we fall into the, the old grass is always greener analogy, right? Whatever you have, you think what you don't have is better. Most of the time, we're somewhere in between love and, and hate. So we're more ambivalent towards the incumbent. Yeah, they're doing fine. Most people and organizations hate change. Change is painful. Change can be hard. It's much easier to do nothing and go with the incumbent or lean towards the incumbent than to change to something else. There's a marketing term. It's called a choice-affected bias. <laughs> I mean, right. once, once you've chosen Google as your favorite search engine, you actually have to change your mind, and most people don't want to do that. So you have to make sure that you're, you balance this bias and, and, with, and recognize the experience of the, and the past performance of the contractor but not give them a unfair – say there it was – but not give them such an advantage that you're going to get a, a process foul. And like you mentioned before, part of this contracting officer dilemma comes with, is the incumbent, love them or hate them, even eligible to compete in the next competition? Like you talked about the incumbent that, that grew out of being a small business and wasn't able to compete for a small business set aside. Yeah, because in that, in that one, they, they had gone over their small business threshold by $60,000. So they went to their revenue, their average average revenue over the last three years was fourteen million sixty thousand, and just like that, they're a large business. <laughs> that changes the calculus on their incumbency a lot. Right. So it doesn't matter if the the users love them, if the customers love them, they may not be able to compete if it's going to be a small business set aside. On the industry side, we've talked about incumbentitis, which is rampant throughout industry. Yeah, contractors can rarely ride their laurels. I mean, it happens. I mean, we listened to the, we did an episode called lucky versus good talking about people riding their loyals to the extreme, but you have to understand what does the customer think? You have, have you asked them which one of the three deciders have you asked? If you talk to the user and the user loves you, but the economic decider says, and eh, this is too expensive. He hasn't told the, the user that. And the contracting officer says, well, we should be competing this. Those are three different problems that you have to address one at a time. A lot of times on the industry side, we fall into the case of, oh, the, the contracting officer's representative loves us. We have a great relationship. But that's not the primary decision maker in a lot of cases. And it may not matter what that person thinks if the finance people are mad that you're overrunning 
or the contracting officer's mad because you keep making more work for them. You really have to understand who the customer is, who the customers are, and talk to them. If you're talking to them, then you won't be surprised by the new statement of work or performance work statement that shows up in a draft RFP that looks very different from your current sal. <laughs> yeah, those are indicators that they want a new contractor or or when you're the when you're challenging the incumbent and you see it it has a lot of things that only they can do that only the incumbent can do, then that is an example of it looks like they want to keep the same company. A lot of clues are in that RFP or draft RFP. Again, industry cares because as the incumbent, many times you know too much. You know that even though the RFP says this one thing, the government really is going to expect that you do something a little different, that you provide more reports or reports in a lot more detail than the RFP says. You already know that. I think I talked about that with Dave Bartlow in one of the program manager episodes we did earlier. If you know that this is what the government wants, you have a tendency to write that into your proposal, write in the hours and the time and describe how you're going to do what you know they want versus what they put in the RFP. And they can only evaluate what's in the RFP. So your competitors who don't have this knowledge are going to write to what's in the RFP, do a better job of describing how they would satisfy the RFP requirements, get a higher score, and be less expensive because they're not building in all these things that you know are going to happen. It could be deadly. <laughs> it's a perfect storm. Last thing on the industry side before we wrap up. As the incumbent, you often have a good idea of whether the government is, is leaning in your direction or not for the, for the recompete. If you're cruising along on your program and you notice that there's a request for information on FedBizOps for your recompete and you didn't know about it ahead of time, you didn't know that was going to come out, that is a clue that they're not leaning in your direction. And it's also a clue that you're not building enough relationships. Alarms should start going off when that happens. Yeah. And this happened to us recently where an RFI request for information popped up for our program and the program team panicked. Oh my gosh, they hate us. They hate us. They didn't even tell us this was happening. Well, it turns out that it was a relatively new contracting specialist who released the request for information a week before the COTAR expected it to come out. So the government folks didn't know it was going to come out that fast either, or they would have told us. And that's a great example of how you're balancing process and relationship. Because when the process looks squirrely, you know who to call and say, oh, is this really squirrely? And they said, no. We just no, no. And then everybody comes back down off the ceiling and it's all good. Exactly. All right, Kevin, we've gone a little long today. Let's wrap this thing up. On the government side, be objective toward the incumbent. I mean, be aware of your biases and toward them or against them and then mitigate those. And on the industry side, don't have incumbentitis. Uh, being an incumbent is not a guarantee you're going to win. It's also not a guarantee you're going to lose. But if you focus on the performance side, uh, on documenting your past performance, because at the end of the day, if incumbency is all you have, it's like, but we've been doing this forever. You know, I, I hear that a lot and a lot and in your personal life. You, you hear, oh, well, we've used that company forever. And the new person comes in and says, so Right. (laughs) That's what incumbentitis does to you. When somebody, as soon as somebody says, why are we still using them? That's a problem. So don't let that happen to you. Remember, every proposal is supposed to be evaluated from, from a zero prior knowledge basis. So those government evaluators are not supposed to bring their biases in. You have to write your proposal 
as if you're not the incumbent. If you assume that they know all this stuff and they'll include it in their evaluation, even if they know it and even if they're biased towards you, they can't give you credit for things that they know. It has to be in the proposal. So this is very, very common. I saw it when I was a contracting officer and I've done it on the industry side. (laughs) You have to start and write like you're not the incumbent. And sometimes on the industry side, that means bringing in people who don't know what you've been doing to read and help write the proposal so that it's written to the RFP and not to what you what you know in, in air quotes. Also helps on the government side to bring in evaluators who understand what you're acquiring but don't have any knowledge of how you've been doing it to date. They just read what the RFP says and what the evaluation criteria say. And that's why one of the things we do for our clients is the red team review. Well, we'll come in as a team of former CEOs and read through us and say, Did, you answered this as the incumbent, but you didn't answer it as somebody proposing against this RFP. Right. Because it pops off the page for us. It's a valuable tool. All right. That's good for today. I'll talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us today. If you need help with red team reviews, visit askskyway.com and learn how Skyway can help. We'll see you next week. <laughs>